0: Okay, we will return to Acts after taking a break for, I guess, a couple of weeks. Acts 2. And if you might have noticed in the bulletin, this is a part one. I plan on dealing with this text at once, and I was way into my sermon and had hardly gotten halfway through the first verse of so verse 42 it is a major verse in my opinion about or not just my opinion but about um, the worship of Christians and the church and how it's supposed to look so it's an important verse to pause on so we'll read this morning all of chapter two verses 42 through 47 but we'll focus in the message on verse 42 Um, So let's pray, and we'll read the text. Father, as a preacher and a pastor, I feel my own inadequacy. There's many things I ought to know that I don't, things I should do that I don't, things I should feel that are absent, things I should believe that I question, but I do believe in the Holy Spirit. And I believe in the power of your word. We ask you to work this morning, Father. Uh, you are our saving and sanctifying God. So save us and sanctify us this morning. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. We'll read Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. This is God's word. I came across a video this week entitled "The Most Depressing City in the World" or "The Most no. Depressing City on Earth." <laughs> I'll let you know what, what this guy thought. This, this guy he presented a few contenders, um, but he landed on the Siberian city of Norilsk. You heard of this city? It's north of the permafrost zone in the Arctic Circle. There's about 45 days of Arctic night. Or polar night, I guess it's called. And it's home to the richest known nickel deposit in the world. It was settled in the 20s, but it really became established in the 30s when it was a center for the Gulag labor camps. Norilsk is... Isolated. When when people say, when they're going to leave to another part of Russia, they say they're going to the mainland. Like it's an island. It's not an island, but it might as well be. Uh, There's no roads going to this town. There's one train track, but it's freight only. And there's an airport, and there is a port, but it's frozen over half the year. Uh, The nickel smelting process causes acid rain and and smog and pollution. One study said said that 1% of the global sulfur dioxide emissions come from the city. Uh, It's been listed among the top 10 most polluted cities. And supposedly there's people surface mining the soil because of all the heavy metals in the soil that is financially viable to mine (laughs) The polluted soil for for heavy metals. Uh, it's of course completely dominated by this one company, Norilsk Nickel, um, and all of the wealth going mostly to Moscow and Saint Petersburg. And uh, you look at pictures, and it's kind of the typical like Russian utilitarian sort of block housing they they took the time to paint them different colors green orange kind of dirt but there it's all dirty um, but not it, it's a depressing place uh, and it's interesting reading through some of the comments there was lots of russians commenting and they were saying i read the title and i knew it would be norsk or or they said i knew it'd be a russian city <laughs> Now, Russia is an amazing place with many wonderful people. Let's not cast unnecessary aspersions, uh, but it has been known for quite some time to be an oppressive state, a, a state um, that, that that doesn't always take the best care of its people. It is a place that's difficult for thriving and for happiness. So, what makes for thriving and for happiness for joyful kingdoms and for joyful citizens. Well, on an earthly level, good governance goes a long way, right? If a a government is focused on serving its people rather than itself, if it is wise, if it's thoughtful in building out infrastructure, promoting freedom, properly punishing crime, at least from an earthly vantage, good governance over the long haul leads to thriving nations and happy citizens. But it's a challenge, even in the U.S., which is one of the most prosperous and free nations still, (laughs) virtually ever, nobody's happy. We're all still grumbling. Now the fact that we are, by nature, grumblers and malcontents, Uh, Set that aside, it's also because even the best of man-made governments and governors are fraught with weakness, with corruption, greed, disunity, ignorance, that they're imperfect. No ruler is wise enough or pure enough or selfless enough to establish a kingdom that is perfectly tailored to suit the needs of all of its citizens and subjects, 100%. Except one. There is one such ruler. The story of Acts, as I keep repeating, is the story of the ongoing Acts of King Jesus from his heavenly throne as he spreads his heavenly kingdom over the earth. And though it's true that we are imperfect citizens, (laughs) and we're going to continue to grumble in his kingdom, um, it is from his side of things a perfect kingdom he he hasn't failed in any way to set it up perfectly and in perfect wisdom he has set in place all that we need to be happy contented thriving citizens so in this passage I want to look at seven marks of this kingdom or we might say the church I believe the kingdom of heaven and the church are uh, synonymous these marks are Part of the infrastructure, if you will, that our king has put in place for the happy governance of his kingdom. They are perfectly suited to our joy and our thriving. In a sense, this passage we have to keep in mind points to an ideal. It's something we will never arrive at in fullness in our life, but it's something we strive for. And I would contend the less that we uh, buck and rebel against the king's. Good uh, patterns, and the more we submit to them, the happier we will be, the greater our joy will be. So, I'm going to break the seven marks up. The first four will be this morning, and then the latter three will be next time. Um, so, the the first four I'm I'm going to call the four devotions, four devotions from verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Luke told us in in verse 41 um, that 3,000 souls were saved as a result of Peter's preaching that Jesus had been made both Christ and Lord. And now we see here, what's the first thing that the Spirit of Christ in them is driving them toward? They are new creatures in Christ. They're being given new affections, new devotions. What What are their devotions? Now the word for devoted is an ongoing action. It's defined by some as persistent adherence or consistent attention. So I have a fairly obsessive personality, but my obsession shifts. I like I love to fish. But I'm not devoted to fishing. It waxes and wanes. And the spring comes, I catch a few, have a few good fights, and I'm, I can't stop thinking about it. I'm obsessing about it, but then it tapers off, and a new obsession takes its takes it place. So I wouldn't say I'm devoted to it, because that's not persistent adherence. Devotion is persistent. It's ongoing attention, ongoing commitment. So these four devotions, I think of them more as... The brushing our teeth variety of devotion, the, the daily meal kind of devotion. We want our devotions, the things that we're into to be our obsessions, those exciting passions. But generally they're those daily meal kind of persistent devotion that are really going to bring us the most, most health and joy over the long term. So the first of these four devotions is apostolic doctrine. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We've been reading a book as elders. Um, It's called Biblical Eldership by Alexander Strauch. And in there, this time that we studied this last week, he had a quote from James Denny. He said, We are certain to bring a good deal of the world into the church without knowing it. We are certain to have instincts, habits, dispositions, associates perhaps, and likings which are hostile to the Christian type of character. So we come in as unbelievers, recently converted unbelievers, with a lot of baggage. The world kind of follows us in, and therefore we need instruction. Um, Chief among those worldly instincts is a misunderstanding of the gospel. I saw a photo recently they had a preacher saying the gospel is so simple a 5-year-old can understand it we're saved by faith and then then it shows a picture of the people yes but what must we do and the preacher says someone get me a 5-year-old we we forget the gospel so easily the christian faith is a doctrinal faith because we're we're born with Our wires crossed. It's a lifelong process of rewiring our thoughts and our affections. That's why Paul says in Colossians, he says, Christ we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the apostles' goal. So there's a lot of disagreement uh, in the church about what should be the focus of the church. So should, it, should the church be all about community? Or should the church be all about mission? Or should the church be all about doctrine? Well, the answer in some sense is Yes. But in the wisdom of the king, doctrine is the source of all the others. It starts there. It's the foundation. Truth. The truth of the gospel is the starting place. It's the foundation for then community and mission. So these other three devotions, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer, they're all founded on this one, the word, the apostolic doctrine. The source of that truth for the first Christians was um the lips of the apostles they went and heard the apostles for us god has been merciful to record their teaching and so it is the scriptures it's the bible that we turn to sproul comments he says there is no such thing as spirit filled christian who neglects the study of the word of god There is no such thing as a spirit-filled church that does not give itself continually and steadfastly to the study of sacred scripture. The first sign of a spirit-filled church is one in which the spirit-filled people do not flee from scripture and seek a substitute for it, but are driven to it and to have their spiritual lives rooted and grounded in the word of God. The word is definitional as Christians so, like newborn infants, the first thing that baby Christians need to seek out is that pure, pure spiritual milk of the Word. And the apostolicity of the doctrine ensures that it is, in fact, pure milk. Just as much as the first century. We Christians in the 21st century need a pure apostolic doctrine. Through the centuries, that's been called orthodoxy. Um, Paul called it the entrusted deposit, or Jude calls it the faith once for all delivered. But there is a, a corpus of revealed truth that is the Bible that represents orthodoxy. That's apostolic teaching. That's what we need, and we need to cast off all others. So the king in his perfect wisdom and kindness toward us has ensured that we have the apostolic word. And in fact, he's based the whole system, his foundation of his kingdom on sending out this word from these apostles and the Holy Spirit carrying them along. That's the foundation of the kingdom. The second of the four devotions is Christian Fellowship. Verse 42 again. And they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching and the Fellowship. When I was a kid in in Rehoboth, New Mexico, we went to Rehoboth Christian Reformed Church and across the street from the church building was the Fellowship Hall. It was the center of Cookies and coffee. It was the potluck place. And as we'll see more next week, food is actually a wonderful God-ordained gathering um, force for fellowship. Amen. Amen. (laughs) But fellowship goes much farther than cookie and coffee. Amen. One Dictionary defines this word fellowship or koinonia in Greek as the intimate bond of fellowship which unites Christians. It is communion, not communion, but communion. It's joint participation. It's sharing, sharing space, sharing time, sharing food and and goods, sharing identity, sharing community, sharing life. And it's important to understand this, that Christian fellowship goes much, much deeper than friendship. Uh, It seems like when people are looking for churches, they start by looking for a community that suits their felt needs. And that's because community is important. We have to mature in our understanding of Christian community. that it goes so much farther than just friendship. It doesn't mean I just look for people that I could be pals with, that people my own age and my own station of life with with similar interests. Friendship is is important, but it's only a small part of Christian fellowship. Uh, So I want to have us turn to 1 Corinthians 12 and take a look at what Paul says about Fellowship. First Corinthians twelve, I'll start in verse thirteen. honor our un and our unpresentable parts are treated with great modesty which our more presentable parts do not require but god has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it and there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honor, all rejoice together. You see, fellowship it runs far deeper than friendship. Friendship, you, you can cast off a friend. You cannot cast off a body part. We're, we're united, in, 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 integrally united we have to go deeper than friendship. So you may be the type of person who doesn't need many friends. Or, or you may be in a phase of life where you your own felt need of social interaction is very low. So if this were a social club or a loose association, that may be one thing. But this is a body. We're assembled, knit together so tightly that we are a single body. When one member of the body is absent or hurting, it's felt by the whole body. That body, that bodily union, the representation of it must extend beyond Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Most of you, probably all of you, will never be friends with my four-month two-year-old, four-year-old, and six-year-old in any kind of Jonathan and David sense of the word friendship. But they need you. They need you to commune with them, to be the body of Christ, to, them, to fellowship with them. And you need them. If you know me at all, you know I'm passionate about the body of Christ. That's because I've, I've been struck by the strong biblical revelation, conviction that's never left me that that if we are redeemed at all we are redeemed to the body of Christ. We can't have Jesus without the church. Even as a foot can't be united to the head without a leg, a torso and a neck. So we must stop decapitating the church. That's why I've taken to calling people who claim the name of Christ but do not participate in the body of Christ's severed body parts. A severed body part is, for one, is useless. It does not serve the rest of the body. My arm, my, if my hand fell on the floor, it would be of no good to me. And likewise, how long would it take my hand to die separated from my body? Not long. The body can live without certain body parts, but there's not a single body part that, if detached, will live more than a few hours. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a little book, Life Together. He writes, Therefore the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself without belaying the truth. He needs his brother As a bearer and proclaimer of divine word and salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. So in the perfect kingdom of God, of the king. He's established it in such a way that we need each other. Not like we need to stick together but we actually literally need each other to stay spiritually alive as a living body the third devotion is the breaking of bread and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread so again the word the apostolic doctrine is the fountainhead from which all of these other three devotions flow and the Word is the source of genuine Christian fellowship. That's what one thing I love about our church is there's no mistaking that it is the Word that is the center of our communion so out of the word flows fellowship, and out of the word flows this breaking of bread. Um, there's no doubt I think that. The Baptists are the champions of the potluck. <laughs> yeah. Any objection to that notion? But I think they're on to something. Food, again, is a natural gatherer. It's a centerpiece for fellowship. Uh, through the Old Testament, this was so. The feast that God set up. Jesus thought it was so. I mean, What did he do with his disciples after he was raised from the dead? He ate fish with them. And then he instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which is itself a meal, is food. So here it's not totally clear what he means by breaking of bread. Luke uses the same phrase in verse 46, which seems to clearly, more clearly refer to fellowship and not communion. Um, But then again, he uses it in chapter 20, verse 7, when he says on the first day of the week, which is the Lord's day. Um, the Christian Sabbath on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. So they had, in some sense, gathered together for this purpose. So that seems like communion to me. So this phrase can mean either either thing. Also, in this text, in verse 42, the definite article precedes all of these things. The word the precedes all of these devotions. So there seems to be some manner of formalization here in the Christians worship. It's not just teaching fellowship prayer and breaking. It's the teaching, the fellowship, the prayers, the breaking of bread. And we should also remember that the early church did not eat wafers and drink a little half shot of wine for communion. It was a meal. So, uh, which is what got the, the Corinthians into trouble. Um, But I lean toward the interpretation that the early church obviously regularly ate meals together, as verse 46 indicates. Uh, But one of those meals being the formal meal, namely the Lord's Supper, which I think is what verse 42 is referring to here. When it says breaking of bread, is that they were gathered for the sacrament. Which is one reason we enjoy the Lord's Supper every time we gather on the Lord's Day. It is a mark of the church. It's something we're meant to be devoted to in a persistent manner. And it's a gift from the king for the fulfillment and happiness of his people. It's a means of grace. So why would we not want to partake of it every week? In First Corinthians 10, Paul speaks of the Lord's Supper as participation in Christ. Part- participation. The word is koinonia again. So imagine being called by the head of your own family to a family supper. And when you arrive, that person isn't there. In Christ and by Christ, we have fellowship with each other. We share meals and commune with each other. Yet, though his divine nature is omnipresent, his human nature is absent from those meals, from that fellowship. So can it be true that we have participation with the whole body, but not the head? Which is a crazy idea, particularly as Paul says, it is from the head that the whole body is nourished and knit together and grows with a growth that is from God. So communion, according to Paul, is a meal in which we fellowship, in which we participate with the risen Christ, the human nature of Christ in a special way. And it's just crazy to me that, that the king of the kingdom would unite himself to his subject in such a way that he is a part of the same body. He is the head of the same body, the first fruits of the body. That's a good king. He's not aloof. Now the fourth devotion, corporate prayer, uh, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So again, the kingdom of Christ is a heavenly kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus calls it. And prayer is a way for we, the earthbound assembly of the citizens of heaven, to commune with heaven, to reach up into heaven. In this context, I believe he's thinking primarily of corporate prayer. And again, the definite article leads some no- some notion of formality here. Perhaps these were... Pray- prepared prayers, liturgical prayers, or, or times of prayer. But um, and honestly, I would like to grow as a church in corporate prayer. We have a great time during the Lord's Day service, but we could do more for corporate prayer. And there's some challenges to that. And I don't have the answers to all those. So if you have ideas about how we can do more in the way of corporate prayer, I think that would be beneficial. The reason it's beneficial is because no great revival or no work of God at all, it seems, in history has ever come in the absence of the prayer of his saints. He uses our prayers To move his kingdom along, Spurgeon wrote, he had a great illustration, when a poor man was breaking granite by the roadside, he was down on his knees while he gave his blows. A minister passing by said, your work is just like mine, you have to break stones, and so do I. Yes, said the man, and if you manage to break stony hearts, you will have to do it as I do, down on your knees. The man was right. The gospel hammer soon splits flinty hearts when a man knows how to pray. The prayers of the saints are the means by which, or a means by which the kingdom advances. Paul pleads with the Colossians in chapter 4. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for us, for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I make, make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He, he desires, he covets the prayers of the Colossians in order that the gospel may be advanced. It's amazing, our good King has given us a voice, direct access to the throne of grace. I don't know about you, I don't have direct access to the president, or anybody in power in my own country. Technically, I probably could in theory, but it would never get there. But we know that when we speak and we have prayers that come to the throne of grace, they are before the throne of grace. We have the freedom to speak, to plead, to praise, to to ask, to confess, and to thank. In no other kingdom do we have that kind of freedom or access to power. Those are the four marks of the kingdom of Christ that he set up for us, the four devotions, the things they were devoting themselves to. And I just want to close by turning our attention to the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 11, if you want to turn there. Hebrews eleven eight through 16. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that was that has foundations whose designer and builder is god by faith sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many of the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore these all died in faith not having received the things promised Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That verse 16 always sticks out to me. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. They recognize the promises are to come. So, it's obvious. Does this world not move us to desire a better country, a better homeland? Whether we live in Norse Russia or in a relatively idyllic Grand River Valley, we do live in a broken world with broken kingdoms, broken kings. We know there's a better city, a heavenly one. And this is what I want you to know is that to live, we need to live in and hope in the reality that we already are citizens of that heavenly kingdom. That's what the author of Hebrews says in in chapter 12. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. We're there, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So we are even now citizens of heaven. And how shall we, who are encumbered with the cares of this world and our sins and our present earthly existence, find the joy of heavenly citizenship? I think by the grace of Christ and the strength of the Spirit, we devote ourselves to the Apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Amen.